Welcome to this week's episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I'm your host today, Travis Frank, Natalie Dillon, my co-host, Brandon. Is she here? Jumped ship. Jumped ship. So here's what I heard, actually. So we know that Natalie loves winter more than maybe anybody else that I've ever met. And rumor has it that somebody told her that there's an iceberg floating out on Lake Superior right now. And so she's... She went up there to find out if it was true. She's always wanted to ride on top of an iceberg. So I guess... You can't fault somebody for following their dreams. I can't even be mad at even her. Even if it's chasing winter in a really strange way. Yeah. Yeah. So we, well, congratulations we, then, Natalie. I, yeah. I mean, and good luck. Yesterday morning, I woke up real early to take my dog for a run, and there was frost on my windshield. So it's possible that maybe it wasn't a rumor. Maybe there's some truth to it. Well, I can't wait for the Instagram pictures. <laughs> so I'm sure they're we'll going to be glorious. On, yeah. on Instagram, as soon as she finds that iceberg out there floating. And if not, then uh, maybe she'll explain what, what took her away from this important conversation that we're about to have. Today. Either way, next episode is going to have a really good story. One <laughs> way or the other, it's going to have a really good story. All right. So that's Brandon Morton. He is our producer. I am, like I mentioned, Travis Frank. The co-host of this show that makes this number one priority to be here. Yeah. Well, somebody has to do Somebody it. has to keep Thank this Thank you, shit Travis. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm glad to be here, and I'm actually really excited about this conversation today, because I'm joined by two, uh, two men that work for Minnesota's Department of Natural Resources, and both have a lot of information that I care deeply about, and I hope that you care deeply about it too. It's hunting season. Like I just said, guys, yesterday morning, that frost, like it got my juices going. I'm ready to go hunt for anything and everything that I can legally hunt in this state. Uh, And we're going to dive into some very important topics today that hunters need to, should care about, uh, should know about uh, in regards to deer, in regards to, well... Let's just see where this conversation goes. Eric Hildebrand, Todd Froberg. Eric, we're going to start with you. Um, what is your title with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, and how long have you been there? Yeah. Hey, Travis. So Eric Hildebrand here, Wildlife Health Program Supervisor uh, with the Wildlife Health Program within DNR. I've been with the agency going on 14 years now. Wow. Todd Froberg, your uh, title? Yep. Todd Froberg. I'm the Big Game Program Coordinator. I've been in this position for about two and a half years now and uh, with DNR for seven and a half-ish years. So before this, I was a landowner assistant specialist in southeast Minnesota, um, working on all things deer. So um, kind of cut my teeth on deer issues, CWD and um, over-density depredation stuff um, in southeastern part of the state. The 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 big buck region and uh, uh, high deer density area. And now, so. now you cover the whole state. Yep. Now I'm I cover kind the of whole a big state. Kahuna. Oh well, I'm, I I do have a boss, so it's just a, okay. a a program of two within the big game program. Who's your boss? So, uh, Barb Keller. Barb. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Um, we're gonna deep dive into deer in the discussion, but Eric, you were talking about the fact that our duck season just opened, and you know your. Like your role as a wildlife health supervisor means you're looking at a variety of different game and um, what what concerns you in regards to those game. And the bird flu is is a topic that a lot of hunters right now are paying close attention to. What's your role with bird flu and what are we seeing right now? Yeah, certainly. So avian influenza or bird flu, like you're calling it, um, it popped its ugly head this past spring. Um, 
It uh, was highly pathogenic avian influenza, which is very detrimental to the poultry industry. The host reservoir is waterfowl, waterfowl species. And so... Uh, they're, they're the carrier. They're the carrier, exactly. And they migrate. And so they're not just Minnesota. This is a migratory bird. They come from, you know, down in the south and migrate up all the way into Canada, Alaska, far, far distances. And so... This is affecting, uh, what we saw this spring, we, it is affecting uh, a number of raptor species, um, such as eagles, owls. Um, we saw a number of waterfowl species this past spring that were uh, neurologic with this, this virus and actually succumbed to death from the virus, such as a number of wood ducks, um, geese. So it, Enough it, to affect the population? You know, that, that's, it's too early to determine any of that right now. Um, but... You know, what we saw in the spring, there was a, a, a lot of uh, reports by the public, also by agency staff. Um, there, were, there were actually a lot of reports of snow geese out, not in Minnesota, but out in the western states, Dakotas and whatnot. Um, very you mean visible. during the migration heading north? Correct, yep. During, during the migration, a lot of dead birds at that time, you know, and it's bare fields. There was no... Uh, crops standing. So they're very, a, a white bird, a white bird black stands field, out, yeah. you know, it's pretty easily visible. Um, this fall. So this fall we're, co we're collaborating with USDA wildlife services in their national surveillance plan. And they have a goal based on watersheds throughout the entire, um, throughout the entire country to collect a, a number of samples in the summer months. It's typically from live cotton handed, uh, handled banded birds. So, uh, agency staff that go out, ban ducks and geese, uh, they take samples from that. What and you, then, what, what's a sample? You pluck in a couple of feathers? Or good you, question. Yeah. Yeah. So the sample is a swab sample. And so we take one swab from the, the throat or oropharyngeal through the throat, and then another swab in the cloaca, also known as the butt <laughs> of a duck. <laughs> Way to be grammatically correct. <laughs> so two, two samples per bird. And then they go into the same vial that has this uh, solution, which uh, harbors, you know, keeps the virus uh, viable. Then they go through the testing mechanism at the lab. Mm -hmm. So we send it off to the lab. They do the testing. We just coordinate on sample collection. Um, so then this fall, we, we're getting into sample goals. Uh, you mentioned this past weekend was duck opener. Mm -hmm. A lot of hunters hit the field. Um, the most ducks harvested is in those two days for, for Minnesota. And so the, uh, over the entire, what is it? 60 day season, 60 day season yeah, yeah. over the entire 60 days, the, the majority of harvest happens right then. You know, the, the most, most of the hunters are in yeah. the field. Yep. Um, and, and so we were hanging out at boat landings where, where a lot of hunters are. And we asked hunters, can we, can we swab your birds, you know, for avian influenza and explain what's going on and why we're doing this and collaborating with USDA. And, um, and so we, we were able to collect upwards of 200 samples over Saturday and Sunday. How long does it take to get the results? Uh, it's a matter of a couple, you know, seven to 10 days. So just over a week to you get You don't a, have them back yet? No, no. We just shipped them off on, what would it be, a Tuesday after the weekend, shipped them to the lab in, in Missouri. Okay. What do you anticipate seeing? Do you have any guesses at this point? Uh, I anticipate to see uh, virus presence. So avian influenza, there are 144 different strains. Not all of them are fatal, like high path uh, avian influenza, H5N1, is what we're seeing as the, the, the fatal virus for the poultry industry right now. Um, again, 144 uh, avian influenza matrix positive. We're going to see it. 
Yeah. You know, it's like I said, waterfowl are the host reservoir species. It's going to happen. As far as high path AI, highly pathogenic, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, when it comes to hunters that have taken ducks and will take ducks this season, is there concern for them eating the bird? Yeah, another good question. So I'm full of them. Yeah, <laughs> keep them coming. <laughs> Thank, thanks for saying that. Every time I ask one, just go ahead. So yeah, uh, <laughs> this virus it can be can be cooked out. So 165 degrees is a magic number, and so unfortunately, even such as myself, I have a duck hunter. When you cook it to 165, it can turn the leather real quick. Yeah, that's you know? like the, the the big deal when you cook wild uh, game is do not overcook it. Otherwise, you're going to not enjoy it. Yeah. And that's the number you have to hit. 165 is that magic number. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I ate ducks this weekend and I don't know that I hit 165. So if the, I get a little weird here, then it might explain it. Do you know what the effects are? I'm not going to swab you. So. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, the risk to people, you know, the risk is very low. Um, not saying there's no risk, but the risk is very low to people. Um, we, they, the Department of Health, for all those poultry facilities that the um, folks are going on the premise, uh, depopulating the entire turkey flock or chicken yeah. flock. Um, What's depart- a nat- I mean, it's a worldwide exa- issue at this exactly, point. Exactly, yep. Yeah. So Department of Health is, is monitoring those staff that are uh, directly involved with those those uh, situations and um, monitoring, sampling, all things considered. And that's why the risk has been low and what we've been seeing with people. So, Well, um, I've been following rules, regulations pertaining to this because I'm an avid waterfowl hunter like you are. And uh, I know I'm not planning to hunt up in Canada right now, but I know for a while there... Hunters were not allowed to bring their birds back. Yeah. And I think they just opened that, right? Yeah, they did. As of, I think, September 12th. I was going to say, yeah, September 12th. And then you could bring back. But what are the rules in order to transport a bird that you harvest now in the field or waterfowl? Are there? Do you know what they are? Offhand, no. It's a fully feathered wing and a head, I believe. But you didn't have to. Oh, for Canada coming in? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. Offhand. I, I don't hunt Canada. Unfortunately, okay. I would like to, but <laughs> right. I, I stick ho- close to home within the, within the state of Minnesota. Um, your, your thoughts, just to wrap up the bird flu here. Um, do you feel like this is something that could be an issue that we need to be paying close attention to? Or is it more something you're just kind of monitoring, knowing that there might not be much that we can do about it? Yeah. So this virus is, like you mentioned earlier, very detrimental to the poultry industry. It has huge economic impact. The unfortunate part, again, is this virus is uh, a reservoir in our waterfowl species. And they, they fly, they migrate. You know, they can, they can fly over the state of Minnesota in a day. And, and we don't have a way to put a bubble over Minnesota. So it ultimately comes down to biosecurity. The way this virus transmits is through fecal matter. Uh, if you get feces on your, your boots and walk into a, a, a poultry facility, the, the virus can spread through those mechanisms. Or if you go hunting and you have backyard chickens that you have in your, your house, you may want to consider your biosecurity measures and not wear the same boots hunting that you would walk into the chicken coop to feed your birds. Virus can spread that way. Wow. So Are there any other, um, any other, uh, measures that you're trying to get hunters or just people in Minnesota to 
consider in regards to this? Yeah, when you see, uh, you know, sick birds, um, neurologic birds especially. What does that look like? Neurologic, um, acting drunk-like, you know, stumbling, uh, incoordination. They just, you know, if you saw ducks or geese that are in the pond, but certainly are like, you know, head is flopping to one side and maybe they're spinning, you know, swimming in circles that just very odd, you know, uh, report that, you know, you can call the DNR info center, um, or your local wildlife uh, manager, you know, that's good information to, to have, you know, what we saw this past spring, um, that was what, what was being reported. And that was the, we, we need the public's help to, to report that stuff. And that goes with, with any species, especially, you know, deer, we're going to talk about deer and CWD, but that's another one is anytime you see a neurologic deer that may be skinny and whatnot, report that because that's important. And that's actually how we found CWD in the South Metro, which is uh, deer perimeter area 605. The public reported that. We had a CO, a conservation officer respond, euthanized the animal. We brought it to the lab, had a full necropsy conducted positive for CWD. Hmm. So that's interesting. Um, this is probably a good segue. Three years ago, I was up in Northern Minnesota and I like to hunt way up in Northern Minnesota in the wilderness. I'll pack in for a day and go miles into the forest. And I saw a spike buck that was running circles in front of me in this field. And I couldn't tell if there was something wrong with this deer or if it was, it was during the rut, obviously this deer was like maybe trying to, it's kind of like a bird dog, you know, working in the, working the scent, trying to get a, like, where did she go? So I couldn't tell if this was a sick deer running like the, it was like a hundred yard loop total. So like, you know, a 50 yard circle basically over and over and over just running it in front of me in the middle of this, like clearing in the middle of the woods. And I couldn't, in my mind, I was like, well, do I shoot this thing? I don't, I, I have no desire to shoot this spike buck. I don't want to shoot this spike buck, but is there something that could potentially be wrong with this deer that I should? Like, what's the right thing to do there? I ultimately didn't take the shot, but I've thought about it since then. And it was so far back into this forest that even if I called, if I called you, Eric, and been like, there's this buck. And you'd be like, well, can you show me? And I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever see that again, you know, so far back in there, but what is the right thing to do there? Yeah, that's a, you know, and, and we've had that Todd and I have both had that question from hunters, you know, um, with Minnesota, you did the right thing. Um, I'll start with that. By not shooting it? By not shooting it. Because anytime you harvest a big game animal, you have to have a legal tag. Yes. And I had already tagged my buck for the season. I was on a hunt for does. There you go. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, just like us, deer can get sick with the common cold. Deer can get sick with a lot of stuff. Oh yes. Yep. So deer, deer could have, Todd's uh, over here nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, brain abscess. I, I dealt with a situation down in Rochester. This buck had a brain abscess and it weren't neurologic and it did just that tighter circles. It was a matter of 20 yards, not a hundred yards, but very tight circles over and over. And, um, we confirmed brain abscess, but we don't, we don't recommend to hunters that are out in the field to, if you see a sick deer to shoot it, we don't recommend that. Always contact the local conservation officer and get them involved immediately and, and let them know that, that there's an animal that's sick and this is the coordinates and whatever. And, and we would respond because we don't want to put a hunter in a, a pickle of a situation where I mentioned the tag, because you'd have to put your tag on it. And 
what you deem as sick could be, you know, something that buck might have been lovesick. That's the thing. Exactly. You know, like I couldn't confirm one way or the other. There was nothing physically about it, but it was just the behavior. Yeah. You know, so well, let's let's keep moving forward here. How many Minnesota deer hunters are going to head into the field this year? Do, do we have a number anticipating? Yeah, we always go with the 500,000 deer hunters, and it's yeah. pretty close to that. It's a little bit less, 485-ish thousand. And with all the permits and stuff, it's kind of hard to pull between it out. Between archery, regular firearm, yeah. between and then all the, Between all the weapon types, yeah. It's it's close to that 500,000 deer hunter mark, yep. So. Are we trending down hunter numbers? Nationally, um, there's very few states that are trending up. Minnesota is uh, unfortunately not a state that's trending up, but um, we are just barely declining. So I think we're in like the 1% or 2% decline um, since the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey that has come out that, you know, that's where the kind of the R3 stuff spurred from, yeah. uh, retention, recruitment, reactivation stuff. Um, so we are going at a quite a bit steadier decline than a lot of other states are. So it's only a one or 2%. What effect does that have? Cause I don't know that a lot of people grasp their role as a hunter buying a license and what effect that has on the overall management of wildlife in this state. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question and um, super important um, for the department of natural resources um, a lot of our funding comes from deer hunting. Um, so those deer licenses sold funds, a lot of, uh, habitat stuff, a lot of the other efforts that the Minnesota department of natural resources does. Um, and I guess, if, you know, in the, in the past recent months, and I guess the past year, there's been some articles highlighted by some, um, you know, media personalities and, uh, about, you know, the value of R3 and is it, um, you know, Ever, nobody wants to pull up to a hunting spot and see another hunter in their spot. Right. Um, so the the more hunters in one spot is is usually not a good thing for other hunters. But if you think about it from from that license sales perspective of funding habitat conservation, um, it's a positive. Plus, you have to think um, if there's a if if there's more hunters, we have a collective body to um, essentially vote on some of those conservation issues. Right. Um, so we we tend to lose a voice the less hunters we have. So it's important to, to have a, a, a robust deer hunting population. That could be an, an entirely different podcast talking about that topic that you just mentioned, because there's a lot of people that I know that preach, Oh yeah, we, you know, I love seeing new hunters out there until they step on your toes when you're trying to go hunting, you know, and that's, that's a real thought that people need to, discuss with themselves before they go hunting. How are you going to act? How should you act out there in bringing new people out into the field? Because, I mean, it's so critical. It's never been more important that if you're hunting to bring other people along to lead them. And we were having this discussion before we turned the microphones on, just how long it takes for somebody that has never hunted before to grasp everything about it. It's not like you take them out one time and say, that oh, there you go. Now you're set to go hunt. There's rules. There's changing rules. There's things that you need to do out there in the field that just spending time, like a year, a season, or multiple seasons mentoring somebody before they're kind of ready to go out there and do it on their own, too. There, There's a lot to know. And then even 
on top of that, as you said, this could be a whole episode in itself, but there's the confidence factor that a new hunter will have. You know, it takes a while to, to gain that confidence to go up by yourself. And sometimes you just got to learn and make mistakes. You know, I still make mistakes every time I hunt probably, but uh, sure. you definitely got to learn and gain that confidence. Yeah. It's, it's been fun. I've got young kids and they've been coming with me since they were three years old and now I'm taking my nephew. So I got like this little posse of hunters that I'm bringing up and even my daughter too. She's out there with us. And we just, I, I hope that every day they take something back with them. And sometimes when Brandon comes with, I feel the same exact way. Like just hope Brandon just takes one little nugget with when he comes out there in the field. It's just the charity for you really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. No. Um, <clears throat> that's a good point. You know, you talk about kids and, and recruitment there, but there's also the adults, you know, I, I remember you're hooking up with uh Dave Simonette next weekend or yeah. this weekend. Yeah. You know, I was with Dave on one of his first hunts on with oh yeah he St. came Pierre. up to your guys's place yeah, yeah. and it, it was a, a light bulb that went on and now he's, for you or him yeah and, and and he's running his own dog now and he yeah. is he is head first but, i think he's getting another dog too <laughs> yeah he's that, not that, gonna you guys are gonna be bummed if you like travel by turtles because he's gonna stop playing music soon during <laughs> hunting season because he's gonna be out in the field with us every day <laughs> so you know it's kudos like there's there's adults out there that they need to have confidence and yeah and uh be willing to, to do that. Let's look at our deer herd overall. Like as we head into hunting season, as soon as we get done here, I have my bow in my truck already. I've got a deer stand and a blind. Like I'm heading north after this. I'm so jacked up. But uh, deer season is basically here. If you hunt archery in a couple of weeks, the youth season is here. I've taken my nephew. I'm pumped about that. So we're getting everything ready. And then the big orange army hits. And that's where in Minnesota, and obviously this podcast can reach beyond Minnesota. Um, but your role here is, is managing this herd. So let's stay focused on this herd here. 500,000 roughly hunters are going to head into the field. What do you think is the general outlook for this deer hunting season, Todd? Yeah. I mean, I, the outlook is still is a positive outlook. Um, we've had increased, uh, regulations or increased opportunity, uh, in 28 DPAs. There's only, there was 12 DPAs that oh, now uh, you're talking DNR yeah, lingo. Sorry. Uh, I better. Yeah. Let's, let's go What's back. A DPA? And, <laughs> a DPA. So a deer permit area is okay, a DPA. Yeah, so, yeah. um, th and that's on our make a plan. So you need to, you need to know which DPA you're hunting into, to know what the rules and regulations are and what maybe your, uh, your CWD requirements are. But, um, yeah, overall the, the outlook is great. Um, there with a few caveats. So, um, you know, in Northeastern Minnesota, there is a, a few deer permit areas that, uh, do have a bucks only restriction. Um, and part of that is, uh, we had a pretty severe winter last year, so I don't probably need to tell, um, the Northern Minnesota listeners that there was a, a severe winter and lots of snow, yeah. um, that, that prolonged, uh, Far, far, uh, or, snow hung, hung, yeah, hung on the pack was spring there green late. up was pretty late this year. So, um, certain areas in North central Minnesota and Northeastern Minnesota had a pretty severe winter. Now, um, did that affect the fawn recruitment then for this year? Um, I guess we'll, we'll wait to see probably, um, in, in localized areas, I would say almost certainly in, in some localized areas, cause we had quite a few reports of, um, um, fawn mortalities and which is pretty typical with and that it. happens because the doe has been so stressed over winter when she's carrying. Right. And then you get to that point and the fawn just isn't healthy enough to survive if they're even able, if they even make it to birth. 
Yeah, so I'll I'll take a step back. So when, when I'm talking about uh, those yearling mortalities, those fawn yearling mortalities over winter, um, those are typically the the deer that are first to die over a winter. So during severe winters, you you typically have those mortalities. And when we start to take notice of when it maybe will have population effects, is um, you know you start to see adult does um, dying over winter. So there was a few reports, um, and then some. Um, surplus killing with wolves which you know is typically an indicator that um there's a there's a quite a bit of snow mm -hmm. so it's making that easier for for wolves to hunt so there was a few reports of of surplus kills and then um a, adult does um dying over the winter so there's likely some some areas that'll definitely see some population um densities lowered um and then it's back to your question of if if there are fawns dying um as they're being born, uh, yeah, that's typically there's if there's lingering nutrition restrictions, um, that spring green up is pretty important for deer coming off a, a, a hard winter. So the the longer it takes for the spring green up, the obviously the longer the winter lasts, and the, there's more nutritional restrictions on those deer. So, so do you think the deer population going into the hunting season in the northeast will be worse, lower than last season? Hmm. It is, uh, I, I guess it's hit them. It'll hit them with the truth right now, Todd. It, I, I would say that it's going to be really localized. You know, there's okay. going to be some localized areas where there's probably going to be less deer. Um, but there's also, there's still going to be deer out there for, for people to, to harvest and have opportunities at. So we'll come back to the Northeast because I think there's, there's just an interesting dynamic up there with the moose population, wolves, and just everything in general, because I know hunters that, are up there and they just, they're not seeing deer like they used to. I mean, things have changed drastically, but let's, let's keep moving around the state. Let's, if you're in the Northeast, let's take it Northwest. Like what do you anticipate for the Northwest region of Minnesota this year? Yeah. Northwestern Minnesota has, has seen, um, the deer there, the deer herd there, um, increasing quite a bit in the, in the recent years. And there's quite a bit more opportunities and a lot of those DPAs, um, and that that's an area, especially from the, that transition zone where we're transitioning from the forest, forest to hardwoods egg. and egg, yeah. um, that there's some burgeoning deer populations and the hunters have been seeing quite a, quite a few deer in recent years. So they should expect to see um, quite a bit of opportunities in most areas up there. And you say there's more opportunities, meaning that there's more doe tags included in those areas. Correct. There's yeah. more deer, there's more doe tags in some of those DPAs, deer permit areas. And then there's also just more deer in general. Yeah. So I'm always interested when I'm at deer camp and you get everyone's perspective, like everybody has an opinion when it comes to deer hunting, especially when they're out there, I've seen so many deer, why can't I take more? And then the next guy's like, I haven't seen a deer all year. You know, like how can we shoot three? I can't even see one, you know? So like everybody has an opinion on it, but yet you guys have to establish this is the this is the amount of licenses we're going to give out. How do you go about determining that based on DPAs? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex thing. And like you say, um, if there's 10 deer hunters, there's probably going to be 10 different perspectives of, yeah. of what they're, what they think the deer population's at or what they're seeing, or, um, I guess maybe the amount of happiness that they're, they're experiencing mm -hmm. while they're deer hunting. But, um, so we base our, our season, management um harvest designations based on those deer permit areas so as i mentioned those dpas but um they can be pretty there can be some that we try to you know form these dpas on some 
on, on similarities ecologically and kind of deer number wise, but um, we have been changing a few of the DPAs and the boundaries um, in the, in the past recent years to be more representative of how the deer populations are. But sometimes, you know, you can have a, a higher population on, on the east side of a DPA versus right. a less less deer on the western side of the DPA. So um, those bigger DPAs can be a, a little bit more difficult to manage. But going into a season, you know, we take public input, um, those uh, – um, the area managers, you know, they have far more uh, on the ground knowledge than uh, we have at the big game program, you know, um, making these designations. So we take the, that public input, the area manager input, and then also uh, what comes out of our population model. So there's multiple aspects that are going into these season management designations. You mentioned the the population model. Like when, when it comes to pheasants, there's roadside counts. You know, there's people literally out there counting the birds in the same stretches during the same time of the year to help understand what the population is at. How do you do it for deer? Yeah. I mean, we, we have our, our regular Eric out there and he, yeah. <laughs> and he goes driving around looking. Yeah. There's, there's multiple metrics that go into the model. Uh, the biggest driver is um, typically harvest um, and, and buck harvest is usually a very good indicator in our model is, is like most models, like most deer models are not great at, um, determining what a deer density is by square mile or per DPA, but it's very good at, um, detecting trends in the population. So, you, you know, you usually can't be super precise in your, in your deer. Um, I guess when you're trying to increase the population or decrease the population, you don't want to be too reactive. You want to take kind of things slow and mm-hmm. it's slow and steady because it takes a little while to, 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 you know, find those trend differences, but it's very good at detecting trends. And that's what most of that is based out of. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes into it is, um, you know, some of the metrics are, are, are survival, overwinter survival, winter severity, certain things like that, you know, your regular, your deer survival metrics. So, Let's keep moving down. Uh, so Northeast, severe winter. A lot of, uh, no, I'm not going to say a lot. We'll just say severe winter. Expectations should be tempered. How far down south do you have to come before you feel like that winter didn't really have a major effect on the herd and the numbers are going to be there, are going to be what people would be excited for? Yeah, um, well... I'm trying to remember where our WSI or so our, our winter severity index map um, points to. There was, you know, there's there's always certain pockets where there's some pretty heavy snow, but um, I would say, you know, once you start getting closer to um, in between Brainerd and Brainerd and Walker, and maybe like a line across the state. So uh, north of that, I mean, that's a big. It's chunk. a huge, it's a big area, yeah, yeah. And, and specifically in northeastern Minnesota, there was like a lot Grand of Rapids, snow. Yeah. north of so Duluth, up in the Arrowhead. There, there was quite a bit of snow in, in mm-hmm. the Grand Rapids area. Do you feel like Hinkley, year. like south of Hinkley, you're going to be, you're going to have, you know, you're not going to have that. Yeah, winter kill. It, the winter probably was not as 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 harsh on deer last year. There's always, you know, going to be some some winter kill associated mm-hmm. with with areas, and uh, I guess. I'll, I'll do the air quotes of Northern Minnesota. Um, sure. So there, there are some, but it, it definitely not as severe as, as some of the other areas. So let's get South of the twin cities, Southeast, your, your neck of the woods down there and Southwest. I, I feel like winter did not have an effect on those deer. What you, what you will see is a change or maybe it already happened last year, but there was a while there where we had antler point restrictions. Those are no longer in effect. 
Antler, why, are they, why are they not in effect anymore? Yeah. Um, antler point restrictions are not in effect uh, anywhere in the state of Minnesota anymore. Um, so antler point restrictions went went off in 2017 and in our, our DPA, which was a, our deer permit area 603, which was formed due to chronic wasting disease detection. That was detection. that long ago already? Yeah, 2016. Cow, I felt like it was just a couple of years ago when my neighbors were complaining that they couldn't shoot a six-pointer because it had to be an eight. Yeah. Man. So 2017 would have been the first year in 603, which was is essentially almost all of Fillmore County. Around that Preston area is the first detection of, of CWD and, and wild deer since 2012, of the, the pine, since the Pine Island deer, but that was the one and mm-hmm. the one and done there. And then um, where most of the CWD is focused now is in the uh, Preston area, uh, Fillmore, and, and then closer over to Winona. So Fillmore and Winona counties, but that's when um, APRs started to disappear as the disease expanded. And uh, we did not want to be protecting that younger age class, which is a, a, a potential reservoir for uh, in a vector for, for carrying CWD long distances. It just doesn't make sense from a disease standpoint to be protecting the, that age class. For the past year, I've been hearing from friends, family, and strangers that have been concerned about my drinking water, thanks to all of the Kinetico commercials that have been running on TV. It's honestly been a lot of fun joking with all of you about those commercial spots, but I have to say, I finally found the number, and I finally got a Kinetico water system installed in my house. What I learned during the process really surprised me, and it might surprise you too. The Aquarius Home Service Tech ran a free water sample test and showed me all of the chemicals and the garbage that was in my drinking water. The water that came out of my tap before the install was purely disgusting. After using the Kinetico system for a few months, I took a look at the filter and my jaw almost hit the floor. Nasty, rusty gunk clogged the filter and made me see firsthand what I had been drinking. Now we have clean, pure water and my wife and I have peace of mind. No matter where you live, there's a Kinetico water treatment system that can fit your home. Schedule a free water analysis today at KineticoMN.com to have a certified Aquarius Home Service technician hook you up with the Kinetico system today. Trust me, it's life-changing. Hey, Minnesota deer hunters, if you're heading into the field this season, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources is asking for your help to stop the spread of chronic wasting disease. Here's what you need to know and need to do. Step one, find your deer permit area number. Step two, find out if mandatory CWD sampling, carcass movement restrictions, or other CWD regulations impact your hunt date and locations. Step three, make a plan. You may need to change your traditional steps. Find your deer permit area and all the details that you need to know at mndnr.gov slash deerhunt. That's mndnr.gov slash deerhunt. This episode of Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. For everything you need to enjoy the fun, freedom, and traditions of the outdoors, you got to check out sportsmansguide.com. From hunting and fishing to camping, hiking, and just hanging around a bonfire in the backyard, you'll find it all at Sportsman's Guide. Tree stands, blinds, rods and reels, ATV accessories, and so much more. Clothing and footwear, too, from top-notch brands like Scentlock, Nomad, Mountain Hardware, Irish Setter, Danner. Ah, the list just keeps on going. Plus, a full line of firearms, ammo, and accessories. The bottom line, if it happens outdoors, you'll find it at Sportsman's Guide. Shop today at sportsmansguide.com and use the code DUNORTH. 
for $20 off your first order. That's do north, all one word, for $20 off your first order. All right, let's get controversial here. What, uh, let's start, we're going to dig into CWD because it's a major topic here for deer hunters. They have to know it. Uh, they, there's been a lot of talk about it. A lot of other podcasts out there that dig into it. Hunters are for it. Hunters are, are for managing it. Hunters are against it. It's controversial as heck right now. And I guess from your guys' perspective, why is it so controversial? Um, I guess I'll start and then sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take a first, first shot at it. And then maybe CWD, Eric, chronic Eric, wasting disease yeah, Eric for somebody that doesn't up. know if, yeah. they, if they've been hiding for the last so few years. Chronic wasting disease. Yes. It's a, uh, in case anybody doesn't know, we can, we can just give a brief overview. It's a, yep. uh, it's a fatal neurological d- disease that affects all cervids. So, and it's, it's 100% fatal. Um, it was first detected or first identified, um, in the, in this late sixties and in Colorado. And, um, it had kind of was endemic to the Western States until, um, until later on when it was, um, kind of brought to the, the forefront and, and really it brought into light when it was detected in Wisconsin in 2002 and then in Illinois at the same time. So, um, it's people started to, um, pay, much closer attention as it started to spread across the country and started to impact some of those areas of, um, you know, f- famous, famous deer hunting areas. Buffalo uh, County. Yeah. Yeah. And once it, once it hits some of those big buck zones, then people are, and that's where the controversy comes in because your job is to try to basically eliminate the deer population in there in hopes of stopping any potential spread, which people managing their herd for, a lot of deer, big bucks, you know, that's where they're like, the heck you are. You ain't touching my deer here, you know? And that's where I think the biggest issue is, Eric, how much of your time are you spending on CWD and why? Yeah. 366 days a year (laughs) is what it comes down to. Yeah. It's serious. Yeah, it is. And it's important, you know, and CWD, it's a reality. It's not going away. Um, We're here in Minnesota. We're going to live with it. Your kids, my kids, Todd's kids, when they start deer hunting, that's going to be a, a new norm versus how when the three of us started deer hunting, it Didn't wasn't, it. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't on the foresight. It wasn't front and center. Um, and so it'll be a generational change. There'll be uh, some traditions will have some slight uh, nuances that will change, such as how you handle your deer, how you handle your carcass or how you handle, if you, if you shot 10 deer in your party, Travis, and you mixed all the venison together for sausage, uh-huh. you might be considering changing those methods and keep them individual until you had a test result back for each deer. Because, you know, then you have the, the CDC currently recommends uh, a hunter get their deer tested first, but then if it comes out positive for CWD, they recommend not to consume it. So there's still no known link where people can contract this disease. However... It is new. There's a lot of research going on with it. Uh, and, and that's where the CDC stands on is, is not to um, consume a known positive animal. Where are we at with cases right now in the state? Yeah, so currently um, we have detected 168 positive wild deer. So wild individual deer across the state. There's been 13 
uh, positive captive cervid facilities, so deer farms or elk elk farms. Um, uh, so Todd mentioned the Pine Island days. So that was it was uh, January of 2011 was a doe adult doe that tested positive, and it was collected uh, from an archery hunter that sampled his deer uh, near Pine Island, Minnesota. Why did he sample it? Did it just look wrong to him? Something about it? We had, so we had our surveillance going on in that area. DNR would conduct surveillance. Anytime a cervid facility pops positive, Mm -hmm. we conduct surveillance in the DPAs surrounding, including and surrounding that facility, that positive facility, because we want to know, is anything going on in the wild deer? And so we conduct surveillance uh, for a three-year period. And the three-year comes from the, the way the disease um, operates, it can incubate in an animal for one and a half up to three years. And so that's the three-year window we want to make sure we capture, that we have enough adequate samples in that area that we didn't miss something incubating in the, in the population. So, yeah, so we set, up, we set up surveillance back then, and that hunter was within that, that area we were conducting it, sampled the deer, and it was positive. We sampled for three years after another close to 5,000 animals, and all were not detected for CWD. And so we felt fairly confident that nothing was uh, festering, incubating, a bigger deal. And so we, we, uh, we ceased surveillance there. However, then we had, you know, Iowa, Alamakee County, Iowa, and other counties in, in Wisconsin close to our Minnesota border pop positive since then. So 2014, we had surveillance. 2016, we had surveillance. Um, and then it was 2016 that we found... Uh, three hunter harvested deer that were positive down in that Fillmore County. Yep. Uh, Southeast. Yep. Preston, Minnesota area. Um, so since then we've, we uh, have uh, revamped and, and re redone our response plan, which is on the DNR website. So if folks are curious, I, I highly encourage folks to check it out. It's, it's a great plan. It's a, it's a lengthy document, but it's, if you're curious, it's yeah. an important document. So it's a lot of information. Yep. That's it is. There. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've been down in the southeast for a long time. Even when I first started, we were we were already conducting surveillance down there. Um, and uh, but I was I was deployed up in bovine tuberculosis in far northwest yeah. at the time. So kind of dual 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 duties going on at the same time when I started. So uh, so then now we have today. You mentioned one hundred and sixty eight, one hundred sixty eight, and they range from the metro area cases to i want to say kind of by like hinkley area right is that accurate like east of there no so well it's so we're doing surveillance surveillance right yeah for positive for positives we are our uh, persisting infection and positive wild deer is the southeast um it's looking like the south metro is also getting a, a continuous positives over the past three years now um, up by Brainerd, we have two positives confirmed up in there. That's uh, permit area 604. And now most recently, the two new areas is the city limits of Grand Rapids. We have two confirmed positives within city limits. How long ago did you find them? That was February. This past February was okay. the first one. And then the second one was found in uh, April. And then the other new area is out by Climax, Minnesota, the far western, northwestern part uh, of Permanent area 661 next to the North Dakota border. Is that by Fargo area? Yeah. Yep. Close to that area. Climax, Crookston. Yep. Okay. Okay. That area. Um, that was a youth hunter harvested a buck 
And her father, um, we DNR was not conducting surveillance out there, but her father, where the family hunts a lot of the states, always takes it upon himself to collect samples and ship it to the, the Colorado State University lab on his wow. own dime and gets all their big game animals heart, uh, sampled for CWD for his family. So it was important to him. And that's how that one was found positive. So Gee, kudos man. to that hunter. Yeah, no doubt. Know? My goodness. Yeah. Well, okay. So when you guys, let's see, how do we want to handle this? So I've got questions because I told the, one of my deer hunting buddies that we were going to sit down and have this conversation. And he's like, can you ask them why, or like, um, do you have any new plans to hold deer farms accountable when they have these outbreaks and why are these farms allowed to stay open? Which <laughs> I'm really putting on the spot here because that's a major thought for a lot of hunters to say, if they're spreading this disease that could affect the entire deer herd in Minnesota and beyond and ultimately change this incredible resource that we have at our disposal today because somebody wants to have a captive deer herd. Yeah. Why are they allowed to do that and risk everything? Yeah. So um, I'm going to turn a lot of that over to Todd. He's got a lot of involvement, but I do want to make a comment right off the bat to that yeah. is yes, deer farm angle. I get it, but I don't want to lose sight of us as hunters. You know, there's been documented cases now that show when a hunter goes and harvests a deer, say in Roseau County or somewhere far away, not necessarily Roseau, I just picked on that because you're heading up there this weekend, yeah. <laughs> but um, harvest it somewhere and take that carcass and they put it in the back of their truck and they move it hundreds of miles, process it, and then they get to their new area and they dispose of it on their back 40 to a completely new area. If that carcass were positive, that is a way this disease can spread. And so, yes, the deer farm angle, moving live deer can certainly move this disease, but hunters can also move this disease through carcasses uh, in, in their own vehicles. So. I think a lot of hunters would say that's possible, but the evidence suggests this, this disease is being found again and again and again in private deer herds. You can't, you can't argue against that. No, no, no. And I do agree there. Yeah. Um, there is some language, I believe, Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, but statutory language that now they have to, uh, if a deer farm is found positive, they must depopulate that herd. And so that is a, a, a pretty significant change in, in recent times now that that, that, pop, that herd must be depopulated um, instead of keeping those animals on the hoof. Yeah. Somebody would say, though, why are they allowed to have this? Why? I mean, I've, been, I've had, a, when this conversation comes up, I repeatedly hear this again and again. Shut them down. What's the point? They're making money on growing these big bucks so somebody can come in there. That's not hunting. And I know this is, I'm putting yeah. you guys on a, like, I'm not trying to put you on a spot, but these are real questions that I hear hunters ask. Yep. And I, again, I'm, as a hunter, I'm up in arms. You know, I'm very, uh, I'm sad about it. Yeah. That it's happening. Um, what, for the listeners on this call here, Yeah, I highly suggest squeaky wheel is going to get the grease. You need to voice your concerns to your representative because unfortunately a lot of these decisions happen in this political movement mm 
mm-hmm. um, which us in this room can help with that. Us on uh, the, the folks listening to this this podcast can help with that. Um, DNR, yeah, we push and strive for it. But again, squeaky wheel is going to get the grease. And, and hunters, please, please voice your opinions and write to your representative. Call your representative. Leave a voicemail. Whatever needs to happen, do it over and over and over. Have your hunting party do this. Have your friends, family, have them do this. Because that's how things are going to change over time. And then it, it may happen right away. It may not. But at least something needs to be said because if we're going to see change, that's how change is going to happen. So the, the, the other change, I'm going to shift it over to Todd here because he's got a lot more involvement, is a recent um, DNR and Board of Animal Health. So deer farms are regulated, have been regulated yep. by the Board of Animal Health. Um, Which is really a separate wing from your your operation. Completely. Yeah. Completely. And so recently, gosh, year and a half, I don't even know about, um, the legislature appointed joint co-management of whitetail deer farms. So not elk farms, not mixed facilities, but whitetail deer farms. Um, and so, Todd, I don't know if you want to... Yeah, and, and I'd like to clarify and hit on a few points that you said so any anthropogenic spread so whether it's a deer on a you know in the back of a trailer going 55 miles an hour in the back of a pickup dead going 55 miles an hour any you know anthropogenic induced spread is is going to be risky so as hunters you know we can't just point the fingers at deer farmers and say that they're completely responsible for everything Um, they do share a part of the risk of cwd but um, hunters are are definitely a, a part of that risk, and um, there's a there's a map from the National Deer Association that shows the um, home zip codes of all the hunters in the four four county area of uh, uh, Sauk, Dane, Iowa, and Richland County in Wisconsin, which is the I mean the premier core of CWD in the United States of, of um, prevalence at uh, f- uh, thirty to fifty percent in adult does and forty to sixty percent in adult bucks and it's kind of astonishing to see where that's that's what i was gonna ask where the home zip codes are scares you about it i mean we'll get to that but like that's it that's what scares you is the fact that up to 40 or 60 percent of your deer herd could could have it or carry it that's i know that's extreme and you're you're kind of looking at me like it is but no 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 you're you're right at what you're what you're saying Uh, i was gonna say i was gonna one-up you here and and say uh this some of the uh, prevalence rates of mule deer in Canada, um, in Alberta, we're at like 85 to 90 percent uh, of adult me- mule deer that were tested um, bucks were 85. I think it was 87 percent. So it's it's that is what scares me. Um, so when when it gets essentially out of control wildfire, um, I mean there's there's been documented herd declines in multiple states and in all three different species. Um, to a certain certain degree, um, so that that is what what scares you. And then there's um, been some anecdotal reports out of Wisconsin, and we had a we just recently had a, 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 a um, the deer and, and turkey Midwest and Southeast conference with the with the biologists, and um, they have heard some anecdotal reports from some of their hunters of um, that you know are in those the driftless region. So I mean we're talking premier. Primo big buck country, um, 
and and deer numbers in general because it's just the best habitat there is probably in the United States. Um, seeing slight declines in deer populations and then um, the class of bucks that they're seeing are just not quite the same that they used to have because yeah. deer are just not living as long as they um, were. So they're not having, they're not reaching their full potential. So, uh, I mean, that's the, for one is if we get back to the controversial thing of, of CWD and it, it affects hunters. Um, uh, well, for sure it's good. It's going to take a long time. So it's not something you see the disease is not super visible. So some of these management actions, they got to be aggressive. You know, once, once, you know, the best way to stop a wildlife disease from getting into place is to, to never, never let it get here. But now that we're at this phase, we have to be aggressive to, to manage CWD. So there's not a lot of great actions. It's, there's not a surgical strike. Right. It's more of a blunt hammer. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that is liberalized regulations. Um, and again, taking away those APRs. So it gets to be controversial because, um, we're changing, uh, the way people hunt potentially mm -hmm. because they have to do certain things with those requirements. And then, um, it could be potentially putting some higher pressures on bucks that maybe they're trying to, uh, let grow so they can get bigger. Um, deer hunters are a pretty passionate, very uh, passionate group. Yep. So, um, if you're proposing, uh, reduced densities in certain areas, you know, mm -hmm. um, that can be controversial in itself. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I get why a hunter doesn't want to take their deer herd and wipe it out, but I also get why it's important, you know, and if we try to look at the big picture here, I think that's what we as hunters need to do because the the danger is way way too um obvious to just pretend like it's not there in your opinion now this is not scientific data that you're looking at or data depending on where you live but <laughs> do you think there's a lot of deer walking around right now in this state that have cwd that have been undetected in different different areas no, I would say not a lot. You know, when you look at 168 positive deer, and we've tested since, you know, what, 2002, we're over close to 110,000 deer. To find 160. It's a very, 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 very small fraction. And the way we conduct surveillance, you know, is very aggressive. You know, even compared to a lot of other states, Minnesota's not alone. There's a lot of other states out there that have CWD, deal with CWD. Um, so if you hunt out state, you're likely going to be dealing with CWD wherever you go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, CWD in the big picture within Minnesota is still a rare event. You know, those numbers that Todd threw out about Sauk and Dane counties in Wisconsin, 40, 50%, we are not even close to that. You could drive Sauk and Dane County, you could drive down the road, look at a deer in the field, Flip a coin, 50-50, it's positive. That's crazy. Dang, that's crazy. So what do they do? They can't, I mean, are they just, they does every deer hunter test or does some of them just say, you know what, bleep it. I don't care. I'm going in and eating. It, it's all on the hunter is what it comes down to. If there's rules and regulations, Minnesota this year, we have um, mandatory sampling requirements in certain deer permit areas. So definitely for folks listening, check out your deer permit area. Mm -hmm. Understand if there's CW sampling going on in your area and then, uh, find out the rules and regulations. When is sampling required? Where can I get my deer sampled? How can I, what are the options out there to get my deer sampled? So there's a lot of, a lot of nuances that go into CWD, yeah. but 
the ultimate onus falls on the individual hunter. And so I always com- compare hunting as just like any other sport. It is a sport. Mm-hmm. You know, I played hockey and there's a lot of rules in hockey. You can't just jump on the ice and go across that blue line. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of rules. So, well, I think this is a good spot. Brandon, why don't you cue the uh, information spot right here so people can learn where they need to go to plan ahead and be prepared for this deer hunting season? Lined up. We're good. Okay. Um, all right. So now that we know kind of like a game plan there, uh, let's, let's talk about, um, the moose population, if you don't mind. I mean, we're kind of getting towards the end of the show here, but it's, it's been interesting for me to watch and kind of like, I, I care about all wildlife and I like to hunt for a variety of animals and birds and everything. But it's interesting to me that, we have most population in Minnesota. And if you've ever seen them, you're just like, you stop and you're like, wow, that's amazing. But there's so few people that will ever see a moose in Minnesota and our population, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you know, like it was coming down, but there's a lot of rumors out there that moose numbers are, are rising again. Do you guys have information that backs that up right now? So there hasn't, there's uh well, let's say, this year was about 4,700 moose um, from the survey, which is the highest number since 2011. Um, so evidence is showing that the moose population has been pretty stable um, to maybe a slight increase, but it's not a st- st- statistically significant number. Sorry, I got to get that out here. Um, it's better than going the other way, though. Right. Well, it's it, it's good, but it's still important, and it, I guess you throw it with a with a caution that there's still a significant linear decline since um, the start of the survey or when the moose started declining. So although there is uh, the positive, it's the highest number since 2011 and there appears to be stabilization or maybe a slight increase, um, there's still that caveat. So, Do you, is there hope that it's going to keep growing? Yeah. I mean, there's I mean, al- you can always there, hope, but like, is there reason for optimism? Hope, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you know, some from the start of the the decline there's been a lot of research done um and we've learned a lot about uh moose and in the needs of moose and um there's been uh, a lot of grants uh, recently with with habitat work and there's been a lot of habitat work occurring uh in northeastern minnesota um so yeah there is always hope do you think deer and moose can cohabitate because well, that's i mean that's what a boils down to for a lot of people. Do you want moose or do you want deer? Yeah. And I'll, I'll put my disease hat on with that. Yeah. You know, and, and I was a part of a pretty cutting edge, significant, uh, moose adult moose mortality study from 2013 to 2016, I think it was. Yeah. Put GPS collars on animals and, uh, looked at, uh, why are they dying? So essentially when, when they died, their collar would text message our phone and we'd go like a fireman, down the fire pole and we'd try to get to that whole carcass as fast as we could to get the entire thing, an entire thousand pound or more moose yeah. out of the woods intact. How do you get them out, by the way? Whatever it takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was, there was eight of us that were trained um, and we actually had uh, a helicopter on standby sometimes where we could call in a helicopter and long line it out. We had, you know, long tracks, snowmobiles, Argos, amphibians. Sounds like a TV show, Moose Patrol. Dude, it was wild. I bet. It was fun. Dang, I want to spend a day in that. It was fun. Um, 
So health related. Uh, so when when we had these these animals um, part of this study, we found that health related issues such as parasites, you know, uh, that was a significant factor. Um, we always hear wolves, which wolves were a factor. But it wasn't the factor. It wasn't the silver bullet factor of the cause of death. Brainworm? Brainworm was one, which is also uh, goes back to your question. Can deer and moose cohabitate? Deer are a host reservoir for host species for brainworm parasite. It doesn't affect deer like it does moose. It can be very fatal to to most moose. Granted, we had some uh, brains from moose that were evaluated, and it showed evidence of P. tenuous brainworm. Mm-hmm. Um, but those animals were presumably healthy. So hmm. it's, there's a lot of unknowns. But uh, in, in a, a general statement, the less deer, the less likely you're going to have uh, significant loads of P. tenuous. Better for moose. It's interesting so, because... If you go into northwest North Dakota or northern North Dakota right now out on the prairie, odds are good you're going to see a giant moose standing out there. And you're like, wow. And it's, yeah. I see way more moose out there than, and the locals are like, oh, I see them everywhere. There, there's more moose around you right now than ever before. Yeah. And there's some theories flying around about that because P. tenuous, brainworm, uh, is <sighs> transmitted or, or, whatever you want to say, transferred through gastropods, snails, slugs, right? Mm-hmm. Out in North Dakota, you don't have the gastropods like you do in Northeast Minnesota in the wooded swamp. Like land. I was going to say, the swampier Wo- areas. swamps, yep. Can so, we just get rid of the slugs? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's a there's a lot that goes into it. You know, it's not just one smoking gun answer. So I think ultimately Minnesotans are going to have to make the decision. You want, right, Todd? You're smiling right now. You, you don't want to. Avo- you want to avoid this question, but it's hard. Do you want deer or do you want moose? You don't get both. The other thing is, uh, a lot of folks aren't aware that Northwest Minnesota had a very large moose population. You know, there was a hunting season back in the '80s mm-hmm. um, where it was pretty much over the counter tags. Um, since then, the population in Northwest Minnesota, less than a hundred, they figure, uh, Agassiz National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, they do feel that there's a, a small population on the refuge, but again, what's a number? What would you guess? Currently? Yeah. Uh, I don't even know. In the Agassiz. Todd, uh, any I, guess? They don't, I have no they idea. Don't, they don't conduct a, a formal survey like Northeast Minnesota. But they fly for elk up there. Don't they see them? Um, if they see them, they would note them, but. But again, the elk, the elk herds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Gregla herd, very, very small area. Yeah. You know, and it's not, not like the entire Northwest region. Yeah. Which, like the Kitson County herd, that's far North where the, that herd comes back and forth from Canada in Minnesota pretty regularly. But that one has a quite a few animals in it. The Gregla herd is a very small herd. Yep. You know, yep. is there, um, well, Sticking with the the moose before we move on to the elk here, since we got big game coordinators here, let's just get this information from you. Um, I went to college in Bemidji. I hunted up in that area that you're talking about. I duck hunted in the Agassiz before, or the, yeah, the Agassiz, and then what's the other one? Thief Lake. Thief Lake, yeah, I've duck hunted Thief Lake. The first moose in Minnesota, I was duck hunting up there, I saw it. And that's over 20 years ago now since I've seen a moose up there. But I have seen them 
And I consistently wonder if I'll ever see one there again. Uh, and, just, and I doubt it. Just on Monday, actually, somebody showed me a picture that was from Middle River. Um, so it was it was a bull and a and a cow out in a soybean field. So uh, from this just recently. So oh, it's so in in the I guess we can go back to the positive thing if if there's hope. Um, there have been quite a few um, anecdotal reports that uh, they are seeing more moose in that area of the state. Um, and even over like Red Lake area, I know we've ha- had quite a few reports that they're seeing some some moose here and there, um, you know, more so than they have in the past decade. So not as many as there used to be, of course, but um, they're they're starting to see more. So oh, I love it. I love those animals. I mean, just to see them, it just stops you in your tracks. Another animal that stops you in your tracks, elk. A lot of people in Minnesota don't even know that we have elk in this state, but we do. Like we were just mm. talking about. Uh, the population is in the northwest part of the state. Um, it's controversial, like what we just got done talking about, because landowners don't want elk in their fields wallowing and, and they're destructive on habitat. Others say we want to see them, you know, and there is a hunting season. I've applied every year, I'm hoping someday, which, by the way, is it? Do I have? Do I get bonus points, or is it just a random draw every time? Like, Todd's the guy to talk to. Yeah. You got to get to the ten year mark until you get into a different pool. I'm so, over ten years, yeah. Todd. Well, then you're in it. So, so my chances are your chances are greater than somebody that just uh, uh, applies the for the first year. So don't yeah. apply, Brandon. I don't want you to take my tag. I don't think that'll be a problem. Anytime soon. <laughs> well, are there any plans to expand the elk herd based on public input, based on where we're at today? Yeah, so there's currently uh, a proposal by the Fond du Lac um, band to uh, relocate elk from northwestern Minnesota to the northeastern part of the, on the Fond- near the Fond du Lac Reservation um, between or around Cloquet. Yep. Um, and currently DNR is in a, a, a state of um, assessing, um, so we still need to collect some some public input. There's been quite a quite a few feasibility studies and habitat studies of that area. And it seems that, uh, there's been some, uh, strong public support from the, the surveys that have been done and that there's good habitat for them there. Um, so that stuff looks pretty positive. Um, but there's still some things that the DNR needs to, uh, dot their, dot their I's and cross their T's before some of that happens. And, uh, we need to do first off some CWD sampling of, of deer in both the Northwest and in the Northeast to make sure that we, maybe don't have a, a, a CWD hiding in the Northwest or um, where we would introduce them into the Northeast. So um, we have a, you know, pretty good knowledge of, of the health of the elk population. Cause we take samples from all the elk that are harvested and we have since um, what year, how long we've we been taking 2004. We started that the so, health assessment for the elk population and the elk population is healthy. very healthy, very healthy. That's we, it's, if you, it, we're one of the premier places to harvest a, giant world-class elk absolutely yes yeah. that's why i draw my name todd yeah. <laughs> dang it it, it is a, it is absolutely world-class and um you do say a lot of a lot of people don't know about it and yeah. um i mean we have uh you know close to as many elk or uh, at, maybe at times between when they're in canada and when they're in minnesota as many as wisconsin i think wisconsin had forty thousand hunters apply for the the five tags that were available to the public the first year it. And I think we have right around 4,000 that apply each year. So it's a drop in the hat to compared to, you know, 
um, how many people are applying just across the river for their elk tag. So a lot of people forget we have elk, even though mm-hmm. they are absolutely world-class. They, they are, and they were originally covering two-thirds of this state. That's what people don't know, that they say, what, there's elk here? And say, yeah, they were native. They used to cover most of this entire state before, obviously, we came in and, and changed things around. Um, we'll, we'll wrap this up. I appreciate you guys giving us all this time and just knowledge. Hopefully people think about these thoughts or these topics. Hopefully you take them into your deer camp. If you want to listen to this, you know, after a hunt and just kind of get information from Eric and Todd. I mean, you guys obviously have a lot of knowledge. We could probably talk for days. (laughs) We probably could. There's so much information. I obviously am passionate about it, care about it. Um, Leave you guys. I'll ask you about this. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Not uh, your kids. No, I was gonna say, no, not your say. kids. No. I was up all night last night with a sick kid. So yeah, probably that. <laughs> not that. Um, I, Eric and I were just talking about that. Of, uh, I, I think back to my younger days when I hunted five to seven days a week, and yeah. now I, I'm, I'm lucky if I, if I don't. But what's keeping keeping me up at in, night in is in regards to work and our. Wildlife populations that you are managing. Me, I put my disease hat on, you know, and I I look at the, you know, the DNR can do what we can do to help and we can manage the natural resources, right? We do it with a passion. We do it for folks listening on this call. We do it for, you know, my son that is going to be a hunter. You know, I want our generations to come to enjoy, to have success, to feel memories the the feeling travis you told me when you woke up the other day and it was frosty you're like your juices were boiling because yeah. this means fall yeah the, hunting season hunting season exactly you're jonesing to get out and go hunting you know and and have ample opportunity not just you know public lands to access but also resources to to you know if you want to gauge success on a, a limit of birds or uh punching your tag on a deer, whatever it might be, or just being able to see a deer, like all things considered, you know, I I hope that is going to hold true because what we decide to do now is really going to drive a pretty big narrative for how things are going to look in the future. And, and again, DNR will help, but the hunter, the individual person, you know, with CWD in particular, get your deer tested. You know, there's other opportunities that we've just opened up, which we didn't get to on this call, but mail-in sampling kits, a partner sampling program, check out the website. It's pretty neat. What is it? We just implemented them this year. We have a kit. You can get signed up on the website, DNR website, Mm -hmm. and we'll mail you a kit. Instructions, supplies, everything considered, no matter where you're hunting in Minnesota, you can get this kit and you can test your deer. You can pull a sample yourself, we provide everything. You put it back in the mail. We receive it at my office, and then we send it to the lab. So it's something new that we've never we've never gone down. We're piloting this year. We have five thousand kits uh, as of this morning. Thirteen hundred are are spoken for. So I want to. I kind of want to do it, but I part of me kind of doesn't want to do it. Like as a hunter, it's a scary thought if it comes back positive. Peace of mind. You know. Yeah, I hear you, Todd. Yeah, I would say the the C, CWD thing, um, disease aspect. I get all, every deer I shoot tested, whether it's in Minnesota, Wisconsin, South Dakota, Colorado, anywhere where I harvest a, 
a big game animals serve it is getting tested for CWD. I have young kids, so I'm not going to be the, the one, the patient zero, I guess. So, um, so that definitely keeps me up at night. And then I guess I would, I would just throw in a plug for, um, uh, I guess, you know, I, I look at some of the deer hunting groups or even just the conservation groups, uh, in it's kind of a aging population of the, um, the participants or, um, you know, who's, who's volunteering. So I would just put in that plug. Like a lot of times I hear from even my buddies of, um, maybe they're complaining about something or the DNR did this or the DNR did that. And <laughs> you um, guys are the, you get all the complaints and I, I just can't help but laugh. All the and blame. I, I think a lot of times I, I say, well, how, you know, when's the last time you volunteered for whatever NGO you want to want to choose, whatever alphabet group it is. And, uh, a lot of times they don't have a good answer for that. So I would, I would, uh, tell people to take it upon themselves. It, it, it's upon us uh, that we can we can keep the conservation movement strong and um, I guess keep healthy habitats and populations. So yeah, our voices matter. I have a group of buddies that I grew up hunting and fishing with, and we have our own private text group. And there's issues that come up, and they like to bicker on this group. And I've repeatedly said, you need to have your voice heard where there can be people that like you need your voice to be heard. Ron Shera has said this for many, many years as a rule, hunters and anglers go hunting and fishing to get away from all of this, the, the politics and anything else. But that's what hurts us because our voices aren't being heard because we're getting out and away from all of it. And it's important that we do step up when the opportunities are present, when we have a chance to speak up, for the things that we care about, because we obviously do make a difference. And, and you're right. I mean, like I, I, I just, I, I constantly say your voice matters. There's public input meetings all the time. The DNR opens these up in regards to variety of topics. You have the chance to go in and express your concerns and they're heard. But if you don't go there, you're one less voice that's offering something that is meaningful and important. Absolutely. And, and, to be, to be brutally honest, uh, our participation in uh, some of our deer open houses or, or the public input um, periods have been pretty pathetic almost. Um, just the apathy among deer hunters. Is, it's way easier to complain to your buddies at the bar. Yeah, and, and a lot of people say, well, the, the DNR doesn't listen, but I can, I can honestly say from my position yeah. on a daily basis, I'm reading public comments and um, I, I, we absolutely do listen. It just maybe doesn't happen the next day or the next year, it's sure. a, it's a process and it, it takes a while to get put into place, but we absolutely are listening. There you go. When the opportunity exists, speak up, go to an input meeting, voice your concern and talk about it and reach civil agreements. I think it's not like it's a fight. It no. shouldn't, you know, it doesn't have to be this side versus this side. You know, I mean, it just doesn't, we're all, we all want the same goal. You can look at Todd and I, we're real people. You know, we do a lot of the same stuff you do. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why we're in these jobs for a passion and to help, you know, people like you and friends, like we're out there together. Yeah. So I think if we open this up to people calling in live, you know, like with their real questions, like that's what my buddy just wanted me to ask that one. And it's, it's the feeling that thousands of hunters have, you know, it's a real question. Like you would get all kinds of these questions, but if they, yeah. Well, and I, on, uh, just on that note too, I do think it's important to, to, to say that we are public servants. So, um, I absolutely welcome 
calls or comments or emails or however you would prefer to, to talk to me. But, um, I, I have the time I can, I can take calls and comments and, and I can explain why we do certain things or, you know, why, why certain processes are put in place. It's not just a off the whim thing. These things sure. are well thought out. So, uh, we definitely welcome the public input and public calls. Sure. Well, I appreciate you guys giving us all this information. Obviously if people have more questions, they can go to the DNR website, mndnr.gov. Yeah. And there's a bunch of drop downs. You can find your name. And your contact information, Eric, you're on there. You, you guys are all listed. So people can find you as well as other input. And I do want to say that um, I'm passionate about all this stuff, but like I'm trying to help too. And I just signed up to be in a DNR workshop for a citizen group um, in a fisheries area that I feel like I have a lot of knowledge to give. So that's one way that I'm trying to provide my, you know, my opinion and help in ways that I think are important. So these opportunities exist for everybody. I'm just an average hunter, just like everyone else. And you can do it. You can, you can volunteer a couple of hours, a couple of days a year to be a part of this. So anyway, we'll leave it at that. Brandon, any closing thoughts that we nailed it? I'm pretty sure we nailed it. Of course he nailed it. Ah. No parting thoughts. All right. Thank you. Well, I hope Natalie found that iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out. Just sailing away on an iceberg (laughs) as we speak. We'll find out next week when she's back on the next episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. Mm